Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, one of the biggest attractions along many parts of the American shoreline are aquariums. And there are generally some pretty amazing places to visit for people, but it is not a simple industry. And there's a real complex issue underneath it all. And that is how marine mammals are uh, held in captivity and displayed in these facilities. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation with Dr. Naomi Rose today about that topic. I am thrilled as well, Peter. Uh, Dr. Naomi Rose, great guest to have on to talk about uh, a complex issue. And I know for, for those of you in the audience who are of my generation, we all remember Free Willy very well because yeah. it was burned, Michael Jackson's song. I mean, I tell you, we might even, I might, through the magic of post-production, I might even thread some of that in here. Just a great, a great song, but a, a, a film that really educated uh, me for the first time about kind of the complexities of uh, these massive whales in captivity. Uh, and... Of course, here we are today. We follow the goings-on of the American shoreline, and uh, aquariums are an important part of the coastal community. And these features, like SeaWorld, uh, which there are several around uh, the country, yeah. uh, have uh, whales uh, that do these displays still. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the ethics of it. We're going to talk about the the science behind it. And I'm just really looking forward to it. Sorry, that was a little long. But before we get into it, ladies and gentlemen, let's have a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, we have as our guest today, Dr. Naomi Rose, a marine mammal scientist with the Welfare, Animal Welfare Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dr. Rose has campaigned against cetaceans in captivity, uh, capture, trade, 
and has been a member of the International Whaling Commission Scientific Committee since the year 2000 and participates in the subcommittee on environmental concerns, small cetaceans, and whale watching. Uh, Dr. Rose is the author of more than 45 scientific papers and articles for animal protection publications, and she is the author of several books as well. She has testified before the U.S. Congress four times and the Canadian Parliament as well and several state legislative and regulatory hearings over her long career. Uh, her work has been featured in the 2012 nonfiction book, Death at SeaWorld, Shamu in the Dark Side of Killer Whales in Captivity by David Kirby. And she has given a TED Talk in Bend, Oregon, an absolutely beautiful little town in uh, the Cascade Range of Oregon, in April of 2015 on captive orca welfare. Uh, Dr. Rose researched her PhD in biology from uh, the University of California at Santa Cruz in 1992 and her dissertation. Go banana slugs. <laughs> great school. Uh, and her dissertation examined social dynamics of free ranging orcas. And she's worked as an advocate in the marine mammal field for more than 25 years. So, what a great guest to have on the American Shoreline podcast. Dr. Rose, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Rose, I think, you know, let's start with the beginning for you. Tell us about your story and how you became uh, an advocate for orcas in captivity. I started very young. I actually knew I wanted to be a marine mammal biologist by the time I was 13 years old, which I think is not uncommon. A lot of young people think whales and dolphins are the coolest thing and they say that's what they want to do, but it's science. And so unfortunately, a lot of folks drop out you know, as they go, get older and see how difficult uh, schooling is when you're uh, an undergraduate and a graduate student. But I was always into science. I liked wildlife biology from the time I was about 10 or 11. And so I just knew that I was going to stick with it. I lived in the Midwest at the time, so that was pretty funny. I was very, very many miles away from a shoreline, but uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then I did. I just stuck to it throughout my uh, high school career. I took a lot of sciences. I majored in biology as an undergraduate. And then I went to the University of California at Santa Cruz. Uh, up till then, I thought I would be a scientist in the field. I thought I would be an academic who continued to do field research. But as a graduate student, found out I really didn't have the patience to be a teacher. I didn't have the patience to instruct. I, I, that's not one of my strong suits is patience. So I decided to try advocacy. I was never a big fan of government affairs or anything like that uh, as a student. So I wasn't sure how I would take to it. And that was 27 years ago. So obviously I really do enjoy and the challenge of persuading people to see things from my point of view or the dolphin's point of view, as I often put it. And uh, that's what I do now. I just have to ask, uh, growing up in the Midwest, were aquariums a, a, a way to for you as a, as a child and a growing up person to uh, learn about? And, and did, did you go to aquariums as a kid? I did go to zoos. I was a very uh, frequent visitor, I believe, to the Milwaukee Zoo and uh, other zoos in the Midwest. When I was six years old, my family, uh, we had family in Hawaii, and 
when I was six years old, we visited that family, uh, my grandmother, my aunts and uncles, and we stayed there for a month because it was a long way to go back then. And, you know, you needed to take advantage of the trip and, and get as much as you could out of it. And we went at that time to what is still known today as Sea Life Park. It's a facility in Honolulu and it, it remains there to this day. And I remember that visit, but oddly enough, I remember very little about the animals. I remember the pirate ship more than I see <laughs> the animals. And it was a, it was a, you know, sort of an attraction for the children. And, and that's what I recall. So I don't think it was seeing the living animals that inspired me to become a marine mammal biologist. In fact, it was a television special uh, with Jacques Cousteau and dolphins playing at the bow of the Calypso. And that's what I saw at 13 and that made me want to be a marine mammal biologist. So I am actually, uh, from my own um, anecdotal point of view, I know that you don't need to see the live animal to be inspired to study and protect it because my inspiration was a television special. Well, I was inspired as well uh, by Jacques Cousteau and the great trips of the Calypso. And and uh, like you, grew up nowhere near the ocean, but decided to be a marine biologist, probably about the same age. <laughs> so I think it's 100% true that we can be inspired by these amazing creatures in the natural world uh, without seeing things in captivity. And, uh, Dr. and I think it's more and more true because of modern technology. There are some amazing high-tech ways of getting the story of these animals across to the public. Virtual reality, IMAX theaters, holograms. There's there's a lot going on in, in high-tech with these. They now have a ro robotic dolphin that's so lifelike, volunteers who were swimming with it didn't know it was alive, didn't wow. know it wasn't alive. And so I think the future is high tech. Well, I hope that you are correct. And it's for our, the benefit of our audience, uh, we want to focus today on, there's a lot of marine mammals held in captivity, uh, seals and, and dolphins, whales, a variety of types. And uh, can you give our audience an overview of why the captive holding of these animals is a concern. I think the captive holding of any large, wide-ranging carnivore is of concern because it is very difficult for a zoo or an aquarium to provide such species anything close to what they need to remain healthy, both physically and mentally. And that's Really, it boils down to space. When you have a wide-ranging predator, they are adapted to high levels of activity. It is, in fact, to find food, but that's not the point. The point is if they don't get that kind of exercise and don't have that kind of space, they will suffer for it. And there's nothing more wide-ranging and large in the ocean than an orca where they cover an enormous amount of ground. They are so complex in their sociality and their foraging methods vary from population to population. They hunt everything from small schooling fish to the largest species that has ever existed, the blue whale. And so to take all of that away from them and put them into what is in essence a box 
because the marine environment is very difficult to replicate in captivity, you're, you're going to cause them to suffer problems. So how did we get here? What's the history mm-hmm. of, of capturing a whale? Because I remember as a, as a very little kid, the portrayal of like SeaWorld sea would go out and capture. I, I don't know if they were using, you know, contractors or whatever, but it was kind of regarded as a scientific mission to go out and get these things. And they would, you know, it was very coordinated. There'd be lots of boats and this like big crane with this like net thing that the whale would rest on and then and they would show this i mean there were i mean it was very captivating at the time uh, and now it's it's things it seems very different now but would you <clears throat> tell us the history i mean it, it 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 is kind of a technical feat to even get one of these things uh, into the box absolutely. you know so it started with an accidental capture uh, as you know Marine mammals in general are prone to entanglement. It's one of their top threats from human beings in the ocean. Uh, Entanglement in discarded fishing gear and active fishing gear. Uh, They find it difficult to avoid these um, obstacles and they get entangled in the net. So uh, this started when um, there were two, two potential sort of seminal moments. One was when one of the aquariums out there, uh, I won't name it because it's kind of controversial, Back then, it just made all the sense in the world what they wanted to do. They shot one on purpose to bring back the carcass to serve as a model for a sculpture that they were going to put out in front of the facility. And the animal did not die. This was Moby Doll. And he is now, it turned out he was a male, but very famous uh, Moby Doll. Um, He was brought back to the facility. He was towed by the harpoon that was sticking out of him. And he didn't die. And so they kept him on display in the harbor for several months before he eventually succumbed to his injury. And people came to see him. And somebody got the notion, oh, you know, people will pay to see this marine predator, you know, suddenly doing what it's told to get a fish, you know. And the next entanglement on this was accidental was of a very uh, adult male up in uh, Namu in British Columbia, and therefore he was named Namu, and that's actually probably a name you know. And he ended up being displayed at the Seattle Aquarium by the gentleman who purchased him from the fisherman who entangled him Hmm. for, I believe, somewhat over a year before he died. And by then it became very clear that people would pay a fairly hefty ticket price to see such an animal, you know, perform. Because in answer to your question, you know, what's the origin of all this? It's entertainment. You know, it's not education. It's not research. And it's not conservation. It's entertainment. The real, the real origin, in my opinion, of a place like uh, SeaWorld, for example, is the circus, not the zoo. Hmm. And so they were training these animals to do fantastically acrobatic feats. It started with bottlenose dolphins in 1937. And it graduated to orcas in 1965. That's what I wanted to know. So 1965 is the beginning of the capture and display. The deliberate capture and display of orcas, yes. Okay. And where are we today? Uh, How many orcas are in captivity in the United States, and if you could, around the world? 
There are 20 in the U.S., most of them at SeaWorld Parks, one at the Miami Seaquarium in Florida, and globally there are about 61. And the rest of them are mostly in Russia, China, and Europe. France, for example, has three or four. Spain has seven, I believe. And so China has 15. So uh, this is something that was going up primarily because of birds in captivity. They did succeed after many failures at getting them to reproduce fairly readily um, in captivity. It, it, you know, sex is a very strong driving force in nature. And these animals uh, didn't initially have enough room to mate naturally and conceive naturally and bear a calf successfully. However, after time, SeaWorld in particular was really pushing to try to get these animals to reproduce in captivity because capturing them from the wild was a huge task, very expensive and increasingly controversial. And so they finally in 1985 succeeded with baby Shamu, who was also named Kalina. She was the first surviving captive born calf. She's already dead, but um, she did survive to adulthood and had some calves of her own. And then in 2012, after many years of nobody capturing them from the wild, Russia started capturing them again. And since 2012, they've captured about 20. So we were down to about 40 in captivity. Now we're up to 60. So uh, from in, in 65, when this started, were there no legal protection? I mean, to shoot one to just for a model, to just <laughs> it just seems like such a waste. There must not have think been much it. in the way of protection. But think about it. In in 1965, most countries that were whaling nations back in the heyday of whaling were still whaling nations. We were still a whaling nation here in the United States in 1965. We were still killing whales for their blubber, for their oil, even for their meat sometimes, but mostly for their industrial products, right? So in 1965, absolutely, there were pretty much no protections. Wow, I had not uh, thought of well, that. And most people don't realize how how recent North America was still hunting whales, both from factory ships and from the shore. It, it, uh, thank you for mentioning that, and I, and I did not uh, know that, that during my lifetime, the United States was a whaling nation. Uh, I'm interested- technically, it still is a, technically, it still is a whaling nation. Hmm. Our, native, um, uh, our native communities up in Alaska still whale um, for subsistence use, but right. not for industrial reasons. I'm interested if you wouldn't mind uh, taking a slight diversion, but you've been a part of the International Whaling Commission Scientific Committee for, it looks like, a couple of decades now. Yes. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the Whaling Commission, what it does, and is it an effective organization in your view? It's had its ups and downs in terms of its effectiveness. At the moment, I think its science is amongst the best in the world for large whales, even for small cetaceans like killer whales, orcas, bottlenose dolphins, and so on. Some of the best science comes out of the scientific committee. Some of the best large whale science is really found in the IWC scientific committee. The political body, the commission itself, is just that. It's a political body. And as soon as you slap political in front of something that has to do with the environment, you can guess how... <laughs> 
up and down it might be in terms of its effectiveness. Uh, politics is politics. But in terms of the science, even though the scientific committee can also be a highly political body, unfortunately, nevertheless, some of the best science is done there. And so in terms of where it is today, of course, only Japan, Norway, and Iceland are still whaling, either for science or for industrial reasons. Japan just left the IWC. It just resigned from the IWC just a couple of years ago. And that's changed the body a little bit as well. They may, in fact, not keep whaling. We really don't know why they left or what they want to do with having left, you know, what they're, what's going on in their government's mind, you know, is a little bit opaque to us. Norway is still whaling. Um, they, they, they only do it for local consumption and, the, you know, for they don't do it for trade. And then Iceland just didn't go whaling at all this year, which is probably largely due to the pandemic, maybe also because it's just not selling that well in Iceland at the moment. Hmm. So, you know, basically most nations, including the United States, have realized that these large, slow to reproduce mammals are not capable of withstanding industrial levels of removal. And that's that's a kind word, of course, they're killing them. Um, but they really can't respond well to that in terms of reproduction and recovery. And so we've driven several species to the brink of extinction. Some of them are recovering, some of them are not. And the body as a whole, the IWC as a whole, has recognized that and has moved more into the conservation realm than into the consumption of these species. Let's uh, zoom in uh, while we're talking about kind of the big the big picture of uh, how we are doing vis-a-vis -vis whales and their population. Uh, zoom into orcas. We have uh, done a couple shows on the network about the salmon runs and resi oh, yes. resident pods. Yes. Um, tell us about the the health of the wild population right now. Uh, how are they doing? So the key point to remember is that you cannot discuss that with a one size fits all rubric. You have to look at each population of killer whale orca and discuss it at that level. So for example, you just pointed out the Southern residents, they're critically endangered. They are in bad shape. And it's a combination of food shortages, climate change, noise, pollution. They are carrying very heavy loads of pollution. And ironically, the removals from the 1960s and 70s for public display, they removed, they being the industry as a whole, SeaWorld and others, removed an entire cohort, an entire generation. I did not know that. And yes. of that and one they community. Are still, they are still suffering from that. They were increasing, you know, because once that, that threat was removed, they were recovering from that removal level. They were recovering from that. And time went on and they were growing. And that at their peak, they were at about 95 whales. But then that entire generation, which would have been coming of age and reproducing, was missing. Wow. And they started to decline again, and then the salmon stopped running. And as you know, if you've had these on your podcast before, these topics on your podcast before, you know all of those problems, the dams and so on. And so 
adding to the fact that an entire generation was simply not there to reproduce was all of these other human threats and they crashed. Now they're down to 70, 75 at most. And Dr. Rose, for the benefit of the audience, and I think I know you're referring to here the, the southern resident whales, uh, orcas in the Puget Sound area. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So again, you have to look at these by population, these species by population. And so the southern residents are breeding population in the Puget Sound area of Washington State, Oregon, and also up to um, the lower parts of British Columbia. They are separated um, evolutionarily from the northern residents. They are related for sure, but you know they just don't interbreed very much. I suspect at the border there's an occasional Romeo and Juliet romance, but <laughs> basically they don't interbreed. And they're up in British Columbia, all the way up into British Columbia. And then there's the Alaskan whales. And again, they are related to the southerly uh, populations, but they, again, are relatively isolated in terms of reproduction. Then you get into, for example, the Antarctic, where there are at least six, at least six populations. I believe there's, there's uh, you know, more than that. But then there's Iceland and the North Atlantic, where there are several populations and so on. And so each of these populations, they do not interbreed with other populations, not generally speaking anyway. They have defined home territories. And here's the kicker. They have culture. They are different from each other, not just in terms of um, genetic differences because they don't interbreed, but they speak different languages, they eat different things, they travel in different sized groups, they are completely culturally different, can just we, the way human beings are. Naomi, can we just pause here and maybe you could regale us with like a cool whale culture, you know, <laughs> a little- A whale a little, culture lecture. Yeah, a little story here. I mean, I'm just fascinated by that. I mean, uh, I've, I've, okay, I've I'll tell heard you, I'll about tell this. You the story, I'll tell you the story I know best because it's the populations I studied. Right. Yeah. In the northern resident community, which is in British Columbia, that's the population I studied for my dissertation. There are orcas that live in family groups. They are so tightly bonded and related that they are more um, closely related than human beings are. You know, we live in what we call nuclear families. So do they. Right such that the males, this is what I was studying for my dissertation, don't ever leave their mothers. Huh. <laughs> As I said in my uh, TED talk in 2015, they are six tons mom, six ton mama's boys. Wow. And they, they do not mate with her or their sisters or their daughters or their aunts. They mate with unrelated females, but then they go back to mom. So they might leave her side for up to, you know, a couple of days during the time they want to mate with some female, but then they go back to mom. And in fact, they spend about 70% of their life within one body length of their mother. Well, I think that that paints the picture of why the captivity issue is so Oh, it's difficult. one of the reasons that they don't, don't handle it well, absolutely. The it's family a, structure is completely destroyed in captivity. The family structure, the complexity of the behavior, yes. the culture of these animals, right. they do but, communicate. But, but, but before we get off topic here, yeah. the other population that lives sympatrically, which means in the same geographic area, but not necessarily at the same time, right? They might be in the same place at the same time, but they sort of divide the area up in terms of like, I'll be here on Tuesday and you'll be here on Wednesday, uh, are the transients. And they are the mammal eating orcas. So 
the residents, the northern residents, feed on salmon. That's one of their cultural differences. But the transients feed on other marine mammals. That's a huge cultural difference right there. Right. They learn that from their mothers. It's not instinctive. It's not hardwired. It's software, right? And then they speak a different language. The transients sound completely different from the residents. And even an untrained ear can tell the difference in a recording. They, they, you would not mistake the two of them. Wow. They look different. They, you know, they look like black and white orcas to you, perhaps. But to me, I can tell the difference as soon as I see a dorsal fin. Transients are pointier. Residents are rounder. Okay. And these are animals that do not interbreed and they have different traditions and cultures. Interesting. And the thing when you say transients, I think that term means these are uh, animals that do not occupy a particular location in the ocean, but move to place to place. And it's my understanding they travel travel quite a ways. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a misnomer. They do have a home territory, but it's huge. It's so large that they might not even visit part of it for years. So they might go north and be up in Alaska and so on for a couple of years, and then, then eventually work their way down to California for a couple of years. That's why they're called transients, because when you see them, you might not see them again for a couple of years. Wow. But the residents have a much smaller, and that's a relative term, home range, and they are seen reliably year after year, season after season in the same places around the same times. Climate change is affecting all of that. They're starting to shift their, their distributions at different times of the year because their prey are changing their movement patterns because of climate change. But nevertheless, they're still reliably seen within a certain territory, whereas transients have just a bigger territory that to the human eye makes them seem transient. It's, uh, it's incredible and, and our audience is well familiar now. We've talked so much and we'll continue to about the, the changes in the fisheries and where, yes. where uh, the food stocks for these animals are. But it really illustrates how big a home range these things are. So the idea of putting one in a pool is kind of, I mean, it seems with all of this science uh, that we just discussed, crazy. Um, that yeah. being said, yeah. I know that uh, you pointed out earlier, I really liked this. You you rooted the uh, the aquarium, the, specifically the, the whale exhibit to kind of this legacy from the circus where they're mm -hmm. doing tricks and like the elephants balancing on a ball kind of thing versus a zoo, which is, you know, has some sort of legitimate uh, academic or research mission as a part of, you or know, conservation mission and a conservation yeah. mission. Good point, which is what I want to talk about is this bre captive breeding uh, methodology that was developed. So how, mm. how did that work? How did, how did they, because that, that does strike me as being a potential, you could potentially justify a scientific the purpose the there. Thing. If you have discussed this before on your podcast, then you know that one of the key points of a conservation breeding program in a zoo or an aquarium is that there is a goal of returning captive bred progeny to the wild to replenish endangered stocks or populations, to augment or reseed an area from which they've been extirpated, right? Right. That's the ultimate goal of any captive breeding program that is truly for conservation. The captive display industry that 
that you know focuses on whales and dolphins claims that you cannot release a captive bred dolphin or whale back to the wild. They utterly refuse to accept that that's even possible because they are so complex, because they have culture, because it's difficult for a human being to teach a whale or a dolphin how to be a whale or a dolphin in the wild. We don't have the expertise to train them to actually survive in the wild. And most of what they do is not instinctive. They are taught by their mothers and their siblings and their pod. And if they don't have that, if they have what I call captive culture, where dead fish falls from the sky, they are going to not survive if you release them into the wild. I actually agree for the most part with the display industry on that point. Therefore, none of their breeding is truly for conservation, is it? Right. Not only that, but they don't even try to control for genes. You know, they don't breed like to like to keep the gene pool consistent with nature. They just breed whoever will breed. They just want a baby because babies sell. And so they will breed a transient with a resident. They'll breed a North Atlantic resident with a Pacific Northwest resident. Most of the calves that have been born in captivity in the in the orca population in captivity are either hybrids, genetic hybrids, or they are inbred, highly inbred. We have mothers and sons mating. We have aunts and you know nephews mating. We have brothers and sisters mating. It's not natural. As I told you earlier, they don't do that in the wild. There's right. some behavioral uh, mechanism that prevents them from doing that. They know they're not supposed to mate with their sister. They know they're not supposed to mate, mate with their uncle. And they don't. There's female choice in orcas, and they won't do it. So these are actually... But, I, I'm just shocked. I, I would have assumed that you're talking about some sort of artificial, you know, you would take a, you know, semen maybe. From... Sure, sure. That they developed that. That's the technology that they developed. But mm-hmm. it's not like you can keep them from mating anyway. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. And as you probably know, their genitals are internal, right? I mean, I'm talking about the males here, right? You can't access them without surgery. They're streamlined, right? Everything's inside and they extend their penis. It's a, it's highly muscular. <laughs> and and so this this is not a species that you can sterilize easily. Yeah. I think you could, but it would be tricky. And it would also possibly be chemical, chemical castration. Right. And you have to be careful with that, that you don't poison the animal, right? And so I'm not saying it can't be done, but it hasn't actually been developed because they didn't want to develop contraception. They wanted them to mate. And so they haven't focused on that. Instead, they focused on artificial insemination. And when they do use artificial insemination, they, of course, are trying to prevent incest. They're trying to prevent inbreeding. But in in the ordinary way of things, they can't control incestuous mating if they're just allowing them also to have sex sort of at at will. And in fact, the one mother-son mating I know of, which, again, should sound as bad to you as it sounds to me, because it doesn't it's sound good. It doesn't it's sound good. It's just like human incest. It's gross. They don't do it in the wild, but they did it in captivity because they left the son in with his mother. And this is a quote that I heard. I overheard, I should say. It wasn't something said in public, but I overheard somebody from a facility say this to somebody in a hallway. We didn't think they'd do it. Yeah. It was a mistake. Well, I'm sorry. You're the world's experts on artificial insemination and 
captive breeding and you left a son in with his mother after he was sexually mature because you didn't think they would mate, why wouldn't they? They don't know any better. They have captive culture, which is pretty messed up. Yeah, it reminds it's something me. They learn, they, it's something they learn from their mothers and their brothers and their, and their uncles and so on in the wild not to do. Nobody told them not to do it in captivity. Yeah, well, it, re- it reminds me of uh, the great scene in the movie uh, Shawshank Redemption when uh, I forget the, the guy's name, but he gets, you know, he's been in jail his whole life his whole life and he gets out and he ends up committing suicide because he just life outside is he's not prepared. That's that's exactly right. There's like money. And it's it's not so much to me. It's not so much that they would commit suicide. I don't know whether they would or they wouldn't, you know, suicide is kind of a human thing. Yeah. Well, it's just, but they are, but they're very smart and they're very social and they're very thoughtful. And so maybe they would, but setting that aside, I still think they would die because to me, the analogy is taking a kid who's been raised in a closet by an abusive parent and suddenly they're rescued. You know, the cops finally find out and they rescue them and they're like 16, 17 years old or maybe even 18. So they're emancipated, but they've been raised in a closet and suddenly you drop them down in the middle of Chicago with a hundred bucks and say, have a nice life. Yeah, not going to work. Not going to work. Um I would like to talk a little bit about the Animal Welfare Institute, uh, an organization that was founded in 1951 and headquartered in Washington, D.C. Looking at the website, uh, Dr. Rose, clearly an organization with a broad animal welfare agenda, not just cetaceans or marine parks, but animals uh, in uh, in all kinds of settings. Laboratories, companion animals wildlife um, and also farm animals yes so when it when it comes to uh, marine mammals uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about the agenda that you believe should be executed or I, I guess put another way what would you like to see different when it comes to marine mammals uh, in captivity whether for research or for tourism I don't believe marine mammals should be in captivity at all for tourism. I can't think of a situation where that's going to be in their best interests. Certainly there are going to be marine mammals who have been stranded or otherwise injured and may need to live in captivity for the rest of their life. And there are probably situations like at the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California, they have rescued sea otters and they are on display But the goal is to release as many of those rescued otters as possible. And for the ones who cannot be released because they've got a lifelong injury or something that makes it unlikely they would survive, they're not performing for the audience or anything like that. They're in a situation that is as natural, has rocky coast like California coast there as possible with, with kelp and so on because they want them to be able to, for example, foster young otters that are rescued and teach them how to be wild otters and then return them to the wild, even though the the foster parent can't be. And so that to me is the only time a marine mammal should be in captivity is when it's been rescued from the wild and cannot be released. For now, what we're trying to do is develop sanctuaries where former captive whales and dolphins can be retired. And that's a pretty normal, everyday concept. There's sanctuaries for 
elephants, for tigers, for bears, for yeah. chimpanzees, from labs, from circuses, from rundown zoos, and and from from people who bought them as pets for heaven's sakes, you know, and, and couldn't keep them after they became adults. And so this is what we want to do for whales and dolphins. It is it has not been done before. No. And so we're trying to develop those sanctuaries. And that would be the future, we hope, after this current generation of captive marine mammals is long gone, they would continue only to take in rescues. And some of them would go out of business, and that suits us just fine. Well, I can understand the motivation. You've been at this now for more than 25 years as a marine mammal scientist and as an advocate, as you mentioned. Um, are you optimistic that the day will come in America where uh, marine mammals are not put on display and as Tyler and you have uh, discussed, you know, performing tricks like they're in a zoo? Is that day reachable? A circus. A circus. Oh, did I say? What did I say? Yeah. A zoo. A tr performing the yeah, performing yeah. tricks yeah, like they're yeah, in a yeah, circus. Yeah, no, no, circus. Yeah, I meant circus. Sorry. Sure. Historically, so say up to about 2010, I would have told you not in my lifetime. Of course, it's a goal I'm working toward, and I have a long view. I play the long game, and I'm I was happy back then to keep working toward that goal, even though I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. Today, after the death of Don Brancho, the tragic death of this trainer who was killed by Tilikum, her, her charge, this 12,000 pound whale at SeaWorld. After Death at SeaWorld, the book that David Kirby published about Don Brancho's death, after Blackfish, the documentary that totally changed the world, my little corner of it anyway, after all of those things, I am now confident that we will see the end of orcas in captivity in my lifetime. Wow. We may see the end of larger species like beluga whales in my lifetime. It'll take longer for the smaller species, particularly bottlenose dolphins, because let's face it, unfortunately, from their point of view, they adapt better because they're smaller. Right. And they have a more flexible social structure in the wild. They adapt better to the artificial social structure they're provided in captivity. And so they do better. I'm not saying they do well, but they definitely, it's its just the science is clear that they do better than the larger species. And that's intuitive, right? They're smaller, but they still don't do well. And so I hope one day beyond my lifetime that they too will be phased out of captivity. But I am now confident that the larger species, particularly orcas, there's only 60 of them in captivity anyway. Right. It's definitely doable. Well, that's encouraging to know, and it's it's sort of part of the the general trend as we as we advance as a culture and we get a little smarter about what we're doing uh, and understand the science and yeah, the more knowledgeable here. about the species. You know, I don't blame the entrepreneurs back in 1965 who thought it was a good idea to put you know Shamu on display. They didn't know any better. Right. But we know yeah. better now. Well, we need to learn. That's what science is all about. Changing your behavior because of what you now know. Yeah, I think you're you're right, Dr. Rose. It's it's a mistake to look back and say, man, there's they were wrong. I mean, it was they had the the there's there's a moral kind of ethical question here about uh, our you know our society's governance of how we treat 
wildlife uh, in this particular case, uh, or at least I guess some of these are captive bred, but I would still consider an orca whale, for the love of God, <laughs> to be a wildlife. And that's it. Certainly, from a from a purely um, captive breeding husbandry standpoint, they are still wild animals. Yeah. There is no breeding going on with artificial selection for desired traits. As I told you earlier, they're happy that they breed at all. They want them to breed, even though they're also doing artificial insemination. They just want a baby. And they don't care whether it's an inbred baby or a hybrid baby or a baby that could ever be released to the wild, babies sell. Yeah, and but- so this is a situation, you know, where, yeah, it's it's still an orca, but it's a messed up. I, I understand. And I, I just I want to talk briefly. And I, you know, Naomi, you don't. I'm, you might have a comment on this, but this is more just my my thinking on it is that, uh, you know, there there is a face value thing that happened. It's just we we obviously we so as a society, me now being a part of it, uh, even though some of this happened before my time. But you look at it like when you when I was a kid and I showed up to SeaWorld and there's a stadium. OK, a stadium uh, yeah. with this pool that was very cool i mean in the 90s it was very cool and there was an underwater window and the whale would come by and um of course the fin was droopy and you knew that there was something fishy going on with that you knew something wasn't right that triggered my uh my little spidey senses were going off when i saw that (laughs) but for the most part you know there's music pumping they've got these you know really uh extroverted inner uh handlers you know i don't i don't want to uh, uh you know insult these people but they're you know they're, they're, there's a lot of clapping they're enthusiastic they're very enthusiastic and it's a show i mean it is a they, it's called you know there's a show it's a show and they do these big shows all throughout the park i mean i remember i grew up i'm a southern california kid we did this and uh there's just I'm sorry, but I just feel like that got out of hand. It doesn't. It hasn't aged well. Looking at it right now from 2020, that doesn't look good. In the 90s, it might have looked a lot better. And I, I think, Naomi, what you said earlier, I think is just the absolutely, absolutely the truth. Peter, we had on Erica Woolsey. Yeah. Who from Stanford? From Stanford, and I'm the Hydrus is the name of her virtual reality. Uh, dive that she takes students on from all over the country and I probably the goggles yeah she she goes out with these oculus uh virtual reality headsets and goes and it is bitchin it is so cool you go on a dive you go underwater it is it's it beats the pants out of the little whale hole at at, (laughs) in 90s so I think you're right. I mean, I just think that it's, I think we're kind of moving on to newer forms of entertainment and. But also of education. Yeah. Because quite frankly, young kids these days, (laughs) I've reached the age where I can say that young kids these days go to a live animal show, whether it's the circus. Remember Ringling Brothers is out of business too. Yeah. They went to a, 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 a live animal performance and they were bored because if they would, try to press a button or something or have some interaction, nothing happened. And so what they want, you know, is interaction. They want to be able to 
either interact with the animal, which is why swim with the dolphin programs are so popular, and those are really bad, or they want to control it, like be the trainer. But, you know, in, in the sense of like video games or whatever, where they are actually with a joystick making things happen, that's what they want. And so what you see lately at a lot of facilities since Blackfish, particularly since what we actually call the Blackfish effect is you'll see older people and really young kids like three, four, five, but you won't see tweens and teen teenagers because they're bored. That was the demographic back in the eighties and nineties. And they all wanted to grow up to become animal trainers. They didn't want to be scientists. They wanted to be animal trainers, mm, yeah. but now they don't even want to go because it's boring. Kind of a, you know, kind of a sidebar, but sneaky thing there because they were, I mean, those animal trainers were like science adjacent. Yeah. yeah there, there's something about that that I want to. looks cool. You got the wetsuit. The yeah, wetsuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the, you, 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 you are controlling and having a relationship with and bonding with this wild animal that's huge. Wow. That's really gripping. Yeah. It's compelling. Yeah, no, it is. I get that. I get it. It's 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 not helpful for the animal, but, but I get why it's so compelling for the human. Well, I think from an ethical standpoint, I think the case is absolutely unassailable that the captive holding of these incredibly large predatory mammals, orcas, I would put belugas in that category, at least two, because the wide ranging habitat that they have, I mean, it's got to be a clear that unless you're just willing to cash in the welfare of these critters for money, it is there is no argument that can be made that it is a fair or ethical practice. Uh, and I, so and I yet, and yet, and yet, these facilities do make that argument. So I, I, I think it's there's no it's a it's a damn concrete pond. I mean, it, it, there's just no way. And I don't care how much fish you give them; it's it's not the real deal. But I want to ask, if you've been doing this for, for 25 years, I would assume that over this period of time uh, that you've gotten to know the people who run these facilities and perhaps the scientists who are involved or at least the caretakers. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with the community of folks who do hold uh, and display uh, these large marine mammals? It's highly adversarial. <laughs> I'll tell you that they, they don't like me mm. and um, they take it very personally that I hold the position I hold and that I do the things that I do to try to move my vision of what should be going on with these animals forward. They take that very personally. Huh. And there have been encounters that I've had with such folks that have been truly unprofessional and even for some people, not at the professional level, but at the personal level, say fans of SeaWorld, not the folks who work there, but their fans who've, who've threatened me, quite frankly. Wow. And so I I don't take any of that stuff seriously. I'm not a worry type of person. I don't have a that kind of personality. Um, but it is remarkable to me how personally they take this. They're the ones who tell us, who accuse us on the advocacy side of being too emotional, of hmm. you know just wanting this future because it hurts our feelings to see these poor animals in confinement. But really, it's not that bad for them. We're just anthropomorphizing them, and we're just being you know overly empathetic, and and we're just 
acting on our emotions. Eh, From my perspective, I, I base all my advocacy on the science. From my perspective, they're the emotional ones. They are taking this way too personally. I don't, you know, have anything against them. I, I don't think what they are doing is in the best interest of the animals, but I do accept that they think it is. Well, I think they're wrong, but, you know, we can agree to disagree, and I will continue to move my my goals forward, and I'm sure they will too. Right. And may the best advocate win. Well, let's, You know, I, I, I don't see this as a game or a battle or a war. It is It is evolutionary change of a society and you can either be on the right or the wrong side of history and i just choose to be on the right side <laughs> <That's all there's laughs> well uh, you know i think it personally i'll tell you I, I agree with your assessment that from an ethical standpoint there other than the profit motive uh, and the fact that you can make a lot of money on this stuff there really is no argument that can be made for the captive uh, retention of these animals for entertainment and display. There's, I, I think there's no argument. Um, it's certainly not better. Animals certainly are not better off. Um, but I, but there's, talk to us about the science and what you know about the biology of these animals and how they respond in captivity and their sort of physical and I guess when we can say emotional state of mind. I'll give you an example because I could truly go on forever about this stuff. I'll give you an example, two, in fact. One is activity levels. I watched these animals day in and day out in the wild. That was my entire graduate research career. I spent five seasons in the field with these whales and they never stop moving. They're always swimming around, doing something, feeding, socializing, resting. They still swim when they rest because they don't sleep the way we do. You may have discussed this on your podcast before, I don't know, but they have what's called unihemispheric sleep. They only shut off half the brain at a time because they're mammals and they have to breathe and they don't want to drown while they're asleep. And so they keep half their brain awake and they continue to come to the surface, moving forward slowly and breathing. So they're always moving. They're what I call, and a couple of my colleagues came up with this word, not me, highly dynamic animals. They're just amazingly kinetic, right? Mm -hmm. What you've done when you combine them in a pool, in a big blue pool, is take all of that away from them. And they spend an enormous amount of their time, up to 70% of their time doing nothing at all. It's literally called logging at the surface. They act like a log at the surface. Yeah. Just hang there in the water doing nothing at all. You never see that in the wild. Logging occurs, it's a term we use out there in the wild, for like 20 seconds at most, 40 seconds at most, never longer than a minute, hmm. right? And that's only when they're resting or socializing. When they're feeding and when they're traveling, they don't log at all. And certainly, I would say it's literally about 1% of their time is spent logging at most. In captivity, it's up to 70%. Hmm. And those are the data, okay? Right. So, yeah. you know, there okay. you are. Yep. The other big change is in their teeth because one of the ways they occupy their gaping periods of time when they got nothing to do is they gnaw on the sides of their tank. Uh -huh. they, they grind their teeth down. And that is literally what they do. They grind their teeth, their lower teeth in particular, down to the gum line. Wow. And they open up the pulp 
Basically, they create cavities and they have to be cleaned out every day with a betadine solution. And they literally have to give them dental care every day to keep their health even minimally acceptable. Because of course, when you have really bad teeth like that, you, you get bad health. It's true for human beings as well. And so mm-hmm. in the wild, where what tooth wear occurs, it's because of foraging methods. They do what's called suction feeding in some populations. Mm. They literally suck fish out of the water column, like sucking a strawberry through a strawberry milkshake straw. I love that. And they just go around, (laughs) you know, and that water rushing past their teeth over a lifetime will cause wear right down to the gum line sometimes, but usually doesn't open up the pulp because of the way it's happening. But that's just in those few populations. In other populations, for example, those who eat marine mammals and the residents I studied who eat salmon, their teeth are beautiful. All through their entire lives, they have these beautiful, scary, big teeth. Well, it's comparable. And yet in captivity, they're so bored with all of this empty time when they're not being trained and when they're not performing that they just chew on the walls. I, you know, I don't, I don't know how big these, what is the biggest tank available, but you have to believe these animals have nothing to look at, nothing to react the to. The biggest tank that's available, concrete which is wall. SeaWorld, which is SeaWorld is one millionth the size of a resident's home range. <laughs> right. Um, it sounds, com- in the discussions that you have with people, um, what is the hardest thing to convince people of when you're doing the advocacy or you're testifying on Capitol Hill or you're engaging a, a community of people who may love their local Orca down at the aquarium. Um, how do people respond when you confront them with the ethical dilemma involved in what's happening? If you're just talking ethics, then they'll listen to me politely and say, well, I disagree with you. But if you're talking about the science, then they'll really reject it, <laughs> which sounds kind of funny, but they really don't want to hear facts that disagree with their beliefs. Um, they're okay that, you know, like I said, ethically, you, don't, you just have a different point of view from me. But Oh, don't tell me that they're suffering. <laughs> I wouldn't support something where the animals are suffering, and they mm. wouldn't. So I have to convince them that these animals actually are suffering. And historically, that was difficult because they love their local sea world or their local aquarium. Yeah. And so for me, I was very slowly going, I think, upward. I think I was making progress, but it was very slow and very two steps forward, one and a half steps back. Okay. Then Don Brancho was killed, and it was a shocker. It dominated the news cycle for days, if not weeks. It was really weird to me because I'd already been doing it for, you know, 17 years by that time, and I couldn't understand why the news media wasn't dropping the story. They were constantly calling me, and they still wanted to talk about it. And it became a very, very big deal societally. And then David Kirby wrote his book, and then Blackfish came out. And that just changed the whole game. As I said earlier, it was really, really strange to me as an advocate Hmm. who'd been slogging uphill really, really slow to suddenly be on a roller coaster that was whizzing uphill and then was crashing down onto the other side, the tipping point. Wow. It was a tipping point. Exactly. Absolutely. A a new level of awareness. And the story about Dawn. now, Now, when I talk to people, they're already sensitized to my point of view. And it's 
the industry, the captive facilities that are fighting to maintain ground, the, the entire debate has shifted its balance to favor our arguments because, as you said, it's just commonsensical. Big animal, small tank, not good. Yeah, not good. And, I, you know, the thing about the in, in terms of a, an economic issue, uh, perhaps the numbers uh, start to decline a little bit as people are uncomfortable with going to see oh, it the wasn't service. a little bit it was huge is it is it or has it there been huge. a decline in in uh yes. in the show? has there okay and that that's got to be a market signal for the guys who run the facilities it was yeah. and that's why they shifted their marketing to emphasize their rides because after all they are an amusement park right and yeah. so uh, it was actually a, a very distinct inflection point for them from their marketing standpoints hmm. but with the pandemic all bets are off yeah, they're really suffering now. And what I like, uh, Dr. Rose, in, in, in the lead up to the show, uh, the discussions we were having about well-run marine aquariums, and you mentioned Monterey Bay. Uh, here is a financially successful uh, attraction, uh, research-based, has no uh, captive marine mammals other than the otters that they Rescued rescue otters, and then right? re-release. There's a formula for success here. You think that there would just be a willingness to take advantage of the of the green light ahead. There is a way to run these parks, be profitable, without relying on the enslavement. I'm sorry, I'm going to say enslavement of these incredible but, animals. But, 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 you are talking about aquariums, which are focused on a demographic that is interested in learning Interested in spending a pleasant day, yes, but, you know, with the kids or whatever, but they are also interested in learning, and it's an educational thing to do with your kids and so on, versus the commercial amusement parks. Monterey Bay is a nonprofit. So are a lot of aquariums with and without marine mammals. But uh. SeaWorld, uh, Six Flags, um, I can name a few others, they are for-profit amusement parks right, with right. roller coasters and rides and interactive, you know, uh, attractions like the, they now have a penguin ride where they actually have animatronic and CGI penguins and things like that. Okay. So that is very different. And, and lumping them together has been one of the difficulties in our advocacy because they are very different. I see. And it, how you message to, for example, a legislator or a policymaker has to be different. Okay. Because if they're nonprofit, they are driven by different motivations and they are less likely to, <laughs> I think, do things that are, are not supported by the data. But when they are for profit and they have to make that bottom line, and if they're public and they have to satisfy their stockholders, there are things they are going to do that may not be in the animal's best interest. And that's just unfortunate, but true. I'm, I don't even think I'm saying anything particularly pejorative or accusatory. It's just a fact. Yeah, they, they've got to they've got to show a profit. They've got to make a profit. They've got to make a profit. And this is a big attraction. And giving that up is a, a difficult economic choice to be made. Um, you but know, what I'm saying is that you might make a decision, for example, to keep a whale performing, even though it's clearly got a problem with it, is misbehaving or is uh, it's pregnant and shouldn't be doing these high jumps and things like that, you might continue doing it. I see. Because you want to make the bottom line 
And then if they lose the baby or, or they end up dying young, you know, you've got another whale to replace it. Right. Cost benefit is going to be different. Your analysis is going to be different whether you're for profit or not for profit. In, in the in the in the discussion in the community of the aquarium community and the research institutions like Monterey Bay or like the Mystic Aquarium, others that are more in the nonprofit side of it, do they weigh in on the commercial operations uh, at all or it's a great question. Um, and the answer is no. They speak with one voice. And that again has been a problem for the animal protection community which tends to speak with many voices. Um, you know, we had uh, less coordination and harmony in our messaging than the industry ever did. I'll tell you, that's a big difference now because of the blackfish effect. A lot of more respectable aquariums with and without marine mammals feel pulled down by the amusement parks. I would think so. They used so. to all be very solid and very unified that's not so true anymore. Well, I think the missions are different, as you say. The motivations are different. And yet they all spoke with one voice once no. upon a time. I but believe Black that. But Blackfish changed that. Do you, and I know we're getting over, and there's so much more we wanted to talk to you about that we're not getting to, but we've, we're getting to the hour mark. But I, I did want to ask you about, uh, you're in D.C., the Animal Welfare Institute is there. You're, you do testify on Capitol Hill. Are, are there any encouraging initiatives in Congress uh, or in state legislators that point to a direction you believe uh, is helpful? Yes, absolutely. I'll give you three examples of legislative advances that are absolutely part of the Blackfish effect. One is a bill passed in California that prohibits the public display of orcas. The, ge the generation that is at SeaWorld San Diego is the last generation. There will be no more births, no more imports, no replacements of animals that age and die. California will be orca-free in the next couple of decades. The second is there is a federal bill. The sponsor is Adam Schiff, who now, of course, is quite famous because of all that goes on in uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah. these days. But he is the sponsor of the Federal Orca Act, which would do the same thing the California bill did across the country. And then the third legislative advance that occurred recently is Canada has passed a bill that already does what the federal bill in the U.S. for orcas would do. It has prohibited the public display of all cetaceans in Canada. That would never wow. have wow. happened 10 years ago. Wow. It is all because of the blackfish effect right. that the legislators took this argument seriously and allowed a bill to move forward and voted to pass it. Wow. Well, it does indicate to me that there must be some change in the public perception of this practice. I would uh, hope so. I've been yeah. working very hard for these <laughs> years, and I would hope I haven't just been screaming the, into the void. The bottom, the bottom <laughs> fell out of the tub with, with blackfish. There's no yeah. doubt about it. And I mean, and it's terrible that a human tragedy, like the death of Don Brancher, had to occur to bring this change about. But sometimes those sort of catalytic events are what it takes. Well, and it would, you know, I'll, I'll just say it wasn't just that, though that's an important part of it. I, I firmly believe it was the evolution of streaming technology and 
the internet everywhere. Oh, the and, internet, absolutely. Social media. Yeah, um, yeah. It went. It, this was a <laughs> yes, yes. a film that absolutely. was on Netflix and went absolutely was a top ten. Absolutely, movie. you could watch it anytime if you had Netflix. I could, it, you know, most people, uh, I should say, most documentaries, you know, might get a couple hundred thousand viewers. I mean, that's a really good documentary. A lot of people have watched it if that's what you get in terms of an audience. Over 60 million people have seen Blackfish. Yes. It's, it shows a level of interest and in 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 an awareness. And, uh, you know, in my experience, the political uh, process responds uh, to the public's changes at first. And it's this groundswell of concern that uh, hopefully continues to spur uh, responsible action legislatively. But I know, Dr. Rose, if you have a little more time, I, we wanted to ask you about beluga whales. We haven't mentioned those. Uh, these are uh, Arctic animals. Sure. But can you give our audience an overview of how this species is being handled and treated in captivity and what concerns there may be about this particular animal? Well, there's not a lot of difference in terms of how they're handled. Um, they tend not to be used in spectacular theatrical shows simply because they're not terribly aerobatic. <laughs> they're, they're kind they're, of, they're kind um, of, they're slower. They're, they're colder. They're slower, they're chubbier. They're, um, yeah, they I are, like they're an Arctic animal. They're an Arctic animal. They're exclusively found in the Arctic. And it's just a, a, a anatomical truth that they don't have as strong of a tail muscle. And so launching themselves out of the water is possible, but it takes a lot of effort on their part. Lower and top it's just speed. not done as much. Yeah, they're, they're less aerodynamic as opposed to hydrodynamic. And so they don't tend to be in these spectacular theatrical shows in the West. However, in the East, in China in particular, they are used as if they are dolphins. And, and I think it's part of the reason why they don't live very long. Huh. They are subjecting them to stressors, physical stressors, that aren't natural and they have very short lives in Chinese facilities. Hmm. So one of the big differences between orcas and bottlenose dolphins or orcas and belugas is belugas are still used, um, are still acquired very frequently from the wild. And why, and why the is, hot that, spot why is, is that? Why? Because they don't breed as well in captivity is I the bottom see. line. It's I very see. simple. Okay. And these Orcas, animals... As I told you, they, they finally got to the point where they could reliably breed them. They weren't popping out babies like crazy because they just can't, but they were reliably breeding in captivity. Bottomnose dolphins actually reproduce in captivity relatively, you know, at a level that is, is helpful to these facilities to maintain their um, populations. Belugas don't. I they just see. don't breed as well. It's harder for, for them. There's a lot of reasons, biological reasons, which I won't go into, so they still capture them from the wild a lot. And as a result of that, there are the population that is the main target for these captures in Russia is depleted. Wow. It is it has actually harmed its conservation status that Russian capture operators keep removing animals from this population to sell mostly to China. Because I work in China and it is a free for all over there. They are going through the 1950s and 60s right now when it comes to this industry, and I hope they evolve five times as fast, 10 times as fast and reach 2020, you know, now, but, you know, we're working on that. Are so, there, so go ahead, sorry. Well, are there comparable uh, advocacy organizations in China that 
yes. are raising the and issues the way you are. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about their take? Is it different? So it is not different because animal welfare is animal welfare the world over. People who love animals, wild animals, domestic animals, they feel the same things even when their culture is completely different. And there is a good, I would still say minority of folks in China, because remember how big of a country it is. It is huge. And it is an ancient culture. And its culture is very slowly evolving because it goes back so far and they're not great with animals culturally you know it's a it's a consumptive culture and so entering the 21st century when it comes to animals has been a slow process but when you educate folks there they get it they get it just as fast as anybody in the east in the west does and so they're only slowly learning through our efforts and advocacy there that there's even a problem here. Like I said, they're kind of in the 50s and 60s in terms of captive marine mammals. I think it's okay. And they love belugas. The white whale, the ghostly Casper white whale really fascinates them. And so they pay a lot of money in a communist culture. That's saying something. They pay a lot of money to go see them in in oceanariums, as we call them there. Hmm. And just in 2015, there were only 39 operational oceanariums with mostly belugas and bottlenose dolphins. Now in 2020, only five years later, there's well over 80. Wow. Double. And that's how fast they're growing. That's how fast they're building them. And yeah. that's how fast they're filling them. I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I, w- I just was in uh, Odessa, Ukraine uh, last year in September. And they were building, I saw a brand new uh facility it was it was yeah, part yeah. resort it's right on the black yeah. sea it was part like resort like you'd spend the night there it was a hotel right on the water with a pool and like you'd have a massage and a cocktail but they also had a teeny weensy dolphin pool <laughs> and uh and you could swim with them couldn't you i i suspect you could i i can't speak definitively yeah. to that i mean this was a low dollar I mean, it was yeah. a brand new facility, but it was, you know, this is not, this makes SeaWorld look like <laughs> a look really luxurious, really incredible thing. But um, I, I take what you're saying and they, people can slap these things together pretty oh, yeah. inexpensively and market them. And, and uh, Dr. Rose, what I would say is to pivot this back into, um, you know, this, the future, which, you know, I, I understand that the, folks who are uh, financially connected to the economic industry that is this these captive whales, it would be pretty bad to look at the, boy, uh, you're going the way of the dodo. But yeah. I also yeah. say there is the, the interest in being, uh, in having exposure to these animals, being able to see them in really incredible ways will continue to be there. And for members of our audience, especially the younger members who are students and people who are, uh, you know, there's probably an economic uh, opportunity as well in pioneering new ways of Of, sharing. Yeah, teaching people about these animals, about their conservation needs, about their biology without exploiting the living animal. Right. Because you should you should leave them in the ocean. You should leave them and protect their habitat in the ocean. That's what we should all be focused on. Not 
bringing them into our world and not invading their world, but protecting their world and learning about their world in our world without exploiting them in our world. And so what I would hope the future would be is that these amazing animatronic animals that really fooled people into thinking this is a living dolphin and it wasn't, it was a robot. IMAX, you know, CGI holograms, all the things I mentioned earlier in the podcast, those are the future. And they will totally fascinate the kids who love that kind of technology. Virtual reality. Can you imagine swimming yeah. with dolphins in virtual reality? Yeah. Really good virtual reality. And you never have to leave, you know, uh, your city. You don't have to fly to Florida or Alaska or anywhere. You just need to put on a, a pair of goggles. I think that is the future. And it, it doesn't mean you won't be connected to the animal because you can still go to the coast and see them there. You can still yeah. go on a whale watching, a responsible whale watching outing, if you're lucky. And again, that's for the privileged. I get that. But, you know, mm -hmm. you well, can reach a lot more underprivileged, you know, folks who who will never be able to go to Florida or Alaska or anywhere with a pair of <laughs> with a pair of goggles because they can't even fly to Chicago and go to the Shedd Aquarium there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You need to reach more people to change their behavior about plastics, about driving cars you need to reach everybody, whether they can reach a facility or not, because the argument that it's, you know, elitist to say, oh, you can go whale watching, but not that you can go to Florida, Orlando, where no hotel is less than a bazillion dollars a night is pretty illogical. Right. It's clearly elitist either way. So we need to be able to reach kids, especially kids, right, from the beginning, no matter where they live. And that only, the only way you can do that is with technology. Well, very, very well said, Dr. Rose. And, and I, you know what? You and I both know it's the truth because uh, you were a Midwestern kid who, uh, <laughs> exactly. who was inspired by Jacques Cousteau, as was I, and became a marine biologist and became a, a coastal uh, professional. So we know that we can reach people in other ways. Uh, well, I... I really want to thank you for taking the time to walk us through the really what is, I think, an, an absolutely fair ethical review of this practice. And I would just hope the folks out there, uh, what I would say to SeaWorld is build a damn cool roller coaster and get rid of the orcas and let them alone. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty well, of things know, kids like to made, do. Well, you know, to give them credit where credit is due, they have made a corporate decision to phase out their orcas. They have. Not just in California, where it's the law, but in in Florida and in Texas, they no longer breed these animals. There's not been a birth for several years, and they are going to phase them out. They're going to allow this current 19 whales that they own to age and die and not be replaced. Well, give that credit we, where it's due. absolutely then we do need to acknowledge and give credit, uh, because you, as you said, there's 20 captive orcas in the United States, and SeaWorld has 19. But I'll tell you what, what we want them to do is retire all of those whales to sanctuary. Yeah, and wouldn't that be cool? they aren't going that extra step. So we still need to put some pressure on them, but again, they are already made that decision because of the public pressure from the Blackfish Effect to phase out their orcas. And the work that you did. Yeah. and I, I, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to take credit for some of it anyway, and it is, it is nice to know that I haven't been wasting my time these last 20 years. Well, you've been, you've definitely been uh, pushing the entire time. Uh, if our listeners want to 
join the fight or learn more, how can they do that? There's a few ways. Certainly, feel free to join the Animal Welfare Institute whenever you like. We can always use more members. I also have a community page on Facebook. It's called From the Dolphin's Point of View. And I'm always available on that platform to answer any questions and so on. I also have a Twitter account. It is at F-R-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-P-O-V from Dolphin Point of View. And I'm always happy to respond to tweets as well. And um, you can also uh, follow the Whale Sanctuary Project, which also has a Facebook page and a website. Uh, we are um, working to build the first cold water sanctuary for orcas and belugas. And we're not there yet, but we're getting there. And again, I'm on the board of directors of that. So you know, if you're interested in that concept, please follow us. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Naomi Rose, a marine mammal scientist with the Animal Welfare Institute. And Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, explore this complicated issue with us. And uh, I'll just say on a personal note, uh, I really appreciate the work that you do and wish you the best in the endeavors you have to create that sanctuary. Sounds like a great idea. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate you discussing this. Father's in my machine.